Earthlings, Earthlings, and welcome to this week's instalment of Cyber Dreaming, the video and podcast series created with escapism in mind. I am your host, Amber Andromeda, and I would like to thank you for choosing to spend some time with me here today. Each episode of Cyber Dreaming features a soothing curation of music and words. If this sounds like something for you, then please do consider subscribing to the channel where you can listen to previous episodes of Cyber Dreaming, as well as a selection of videos dedicated solely to music. You can now also listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other podcast platforms, and I'll leave links to those in the description below. There will also be linked to some of my music videos, as well as a link to my blog and my social media handles. The intention of today's episode is to provide a somewhat meditative soundscape and will have a slightly different format than usual. At the end of this introduction, the remainder of this week's episode will be uninterrupted. We'll be starting off the show with some calming music, which will then subtly transition into the spoken word portion of the podcast. Another curiosity of the night sky will be reading to you from the second chapter of the wonderfully illustrative book by Garrett Service, quietly and softly narrating to you his description of star clouds, star clusters and star streams. At the end of the reading there will be a few more minutes of ambient music which will take you to the end of the episode. I'll be leaving timestamps in the description so you know when each portion of the episode is starting and finishing. So without further ado, please make yourself comfortable and allow your mind to wander and drift. Thank you. 
Judged by the eye alone, the Milky Way is one of the most delicately beautiful phenomena in the entire realm of nature. A shimmer of silvery gauze stretched across the sky, but studied in the light of its revelations, it is the most stupendous object presented to human ken. Let us consider first its appearance to ordinary vision. Its apparent position in the sky shifts according to the season. On a serene cloudless summer evening, in the absence of the moon, whose light obscures it, one sees the galaxy spanning the heavens from north to southeast of the zenith like a phosphorant arch. In early spring it forms a similar but, upon the whole, less brilliant arch west of the zenith. Between spring and summer, it lies like a long, faint twilight band along the northern horizon. At the beginning of winter, it again forms an arch, this time spanning the sky from east to west, a little north of the zenith. These are its positions as viewed from the mean latitude of the United States. Even the beginner in stargazing does not have to watch it throughout the year in order to be convinced that it is, in reality, a great circle extending entirely around the celestial sphere. We appear to be situated near its centre, but its periphery is evidently far away in the depths of space. Although to the casual observer, it seems but a delicate scarf of light, brighter in some places than in others, but hazy and indefinite at the best. Such is not its appearance to those who study it with care. They perceive that it is an organic whole, though marvellously complex in detail. The telescope shows that it consists of stars too faint and small through excess of distance to be separately visible. Of the hundred million suns, which some estimates have fixed as the probable population of the starry universe, the vast majority, at least thirty to one, are included in this strange belt of misty light, but they are not uniformly distributed in it. On the contrary, they are arrayed in clusters, knots, bunches, clouds and streams. The appearance is somewhat as if the galaxy consisted of innumerable swarms of silver-winged bees, more or less intermixed, some massed together, some crossing the paths of others, but all governed by a single purpose which leads them to encircle the region of space in which we are situated. From the beginning of the systemic study of the heavens, the fact has been recognised that the form of the Milky Way denotes the scheme of the sidereal system. At first it was thought that the shape of the system was that of a vast round disk, flat like a cheese and filled with stars, our sun and his relatively few neighbours being placed near the centre. According to this view, the galactic belt was an effect of perspective, for when looking in the direction of the plane of the disk, 
the eye ranged through an immense extension of stars which blended into a glimmering blur surrounding us like a ring. While we're looking out from the sides of the disk, we saw but few stars, and in those directions the heavens appeared relatively blank. Finally, it was recognised that this theory did not correspond with the observed appearances, and it became evident that the Milky Way was not a mere effect of perspective, but an actual band of enormously distant stars, forming a circle around the sphere. The central opening of the ring, containing many scattered stars, being many times broader than the widths of the ring itself. Our sun is one of the scattered stars in the central opening. As already remarked, the ring of the galaxy is very irregular, and in places it is partly broken. With its sinuous outline, its pendant sprays, its graceful and accordant curves, its bunching of masses, its occasional interstices, and the manifest order of a general plan governing the jumble of its details. It bears a remarkable resemblance to a garland, a fact which appears the more wonderful when we recall its composition. That an elm tree should trace the lines of beauty with its leafy and pendulous branches does not surprise us, but we can only gaze with growing amazement when we behold a hundred million suns imitating the form of a chaplet. And then we have to remember that this form furnishes the ground plan of the universe. As an indication of the extraordinary speculations to which the mystery of the Milky Way has given rise, a recently proposed theory may be mentioned. Starting with the data, first, that the number of stars increases as the Milky Way is approached, reaches a maximum in its plane, while on the other hand the number of nebulae is greatest outside the Milky Way, and increases with distance from it, and second, that the Milky Way, although a complete ring, is broad and diffuse on one side through one half its course, that half alone containing nebulae, and relatively narrow and well defined on the opposite side. The author of this singular speculation avers that these facts can best be explained by supposing that the invisible universe consists of two interpenetrating parts, one of which is a chaos of indefinite extent, stream of stars and nebulous dust, and the other a long, broad but comparatively thin cluster of stars, including the Sun as one of its central members. This flat star cluster is conceived to be moving edgewise through the chaos, and it acts after the manner of a snowplow sweeping away the cosmic dust and piling it on either hand above and below the plane of the moving cluster. It thus forms a transparent rift through which we see farther and command a view of more stars through the intensified dust clouds on either hand. This rift is the Milky Way. The dust thrown aside towards the poles of the Milky Way is the substance of the nebulae which are bound there. Ahead, where the front of the star plough is clearing the way, the chaos is nearer at hand, and consequently, there the rift subtends a broader angle, and is filled with primordial dust, which, 
may be annexed by the vanguard of the star swarm. Forms and nebulae seen only in that part of the Milky Way. But behind, the rift appears narrow because there we look farther away between dust clouds produced ages ago by the front of the plough, and no scattered dust remains in that part of the rift. In quoting an outline of this strikingly original theory, the present writer should not be understood as assenting to it. That it appears bizarre is not in itself a reason for rejecting it. When we are dealing with so problematical and enigmatical a subject as the Milky Way, but the serious objection is that the theory does not sufficiently accord with the observed phenomena. There is too much evidence that the Milky Way is an organic system, however fantastic its form, to permit the belief that it can only be a rift in chaotic clouds. As with every organism, we find that its parts are more or less clearly repeated in its ensemble. Among all the strange things that the Milky Way contains, there is nothing so extraordinary as itself. Every astronomer must many times have found himself marvelling at it in those comparatively rare nights when it shows all its beauty and all its strangeness. In its great broken rifts, divisions and spirals are found the gigantic prototypes of similar forms in its star clouds and clusters. As we have said, it determines the general shape of the whole sidereal system. Some of the brightest stars in the sky appear to hang like jewels, suspended at the ends of tassels dropped from the galaxy. Among these pendants are the Pleiades and the Hyades. Orion, too, the mighty hunter, is caught in a loop of light thrown out from it. The majority of the great first magnitude stars seem to relate to it if they formed an ear ring inclined at an angle from some 20 degrees to its plane. Many of the long curves that set off from it on both sides are accompanied by corresponding curves of lucid stars. In a word, it offers every appearance of structural connection with the entire starry system. That the universe should have assumed the form of a wreath is certainly a matter of astonishment. But it would have been still more astonishing if it had been a cube, a rhomboid or a dodecahedron, for then we should have had to suppose that something resembling the forces that shape crystals had acted upon the stars. And the difficulty of explaining the universe by the laws of gravitation would have been increased. From the Milky Way as a whole, we pass to the vast clouds, swarms and clusters of stars which it is made up. It may be, as some astronomers hold, that most of the galactic stars are much smaller than the Sun, so that their faintness is not due entirely to the effect of distance. Still, their intrinsic balance attests their solar character, and considering their remoteness, which has been estimated at not less than 10,000 to 20,000 light-years. Their actual masses cannot be extremely small. The minutest of them are entitled to be regarded as real suns, and they vary enormously in magnitude. The effects of their attractions upon one another can only be inferred from their clustering, 
because their relative movements are not apparent on account of the brevity of the observations that we can make. But imagine a being for whom a million years would be but a flitting moment, to whom the Milky Way would appear in a state of ceaseless agitation, swirling in a whirlpool motion. The cloud-like aspect of large parts of the galaxy must always have attracted attention, even from naked eye observers, but the true star clouds were first satisfactorily represented in Barnard's photographs. The resemblance to actual clouds is often startling. Some are close-packed and dense, like cumuli. Some are wispy or mottled, like cirri. The rifts and modulations, as well as the general outlines, are the same as those of clouds of vapour or dust. One notices also the characteristic thinning out at the edges. But we must be aware of supposing that the component suns are thickly crowded as the particles forming an ordinary cloud. They look, indeed, as if they were matted together because of the irradiation of light. But in reality, millions and billions of miles separate each star from its neighbours. Nevertheless, they form real assemblages whose members are far more closely related to one another than is our sun to the stars around him. And if we were in the Milky Way, the aspect of the nocturnal sky would be marvellously different from its present appearance. Stellar clouds are characteristic of the galaxy and are not found beyond its borders except in the Magellanic Clouds of the Southern Hemisphere, which resemble detached portions of the Milky Way. These singular objects form a striking and peculiarity of the austral heavens, as does the great coal sack described in Chapter 1, but it is their isolation that makes them so remarkable, for their composition is essentially galactic, and if they were included within its boundaries, they would not appear more wonderful than many other parts of the Milky Way. Placed where they are, they look like masses fallen from the great stellar arch. They are full of nebulae and star clusters, and show striking evidences of spiral movement. Star swarms, which are also characteristic features of the galaxy, differ from star clouds very much in the way that their name would imply, i.e. their component stars are so arranged, even when they are countless in number, that the idea of an exceedingly numerous assemblage rather than that of a cloud is impressed on the observer's mind. In a star swarm, the separate members are distinguishable because they are either larger or nearer than the stars composing a cloud. A splendid example of a true star swarm is furnished by Chi Persei in that part of the Milky Way which runs between the constellations Perseus and Cassiopeia. This swarm is much coarser than many others and can be seen by the naked eye. In a small telescope it appears double, as if the suns composing it had divided into two parties, which keep on their way side by side with some commingling of their members where the skirts of the two companies come in contact. 
smaller than either star clouds or star swarms, and differing from both in their organisation, the star clusters. These, unlike the others, are found outside as well as the inside of the Milky Way. Although they are more numerous inside its boundaries than elsewhere, the term star cluster is sometimes applied though improperly to assemblages which are rather groups such, for instance, as the Pleiades. In their most characteristic aspect, star clusters are of a globular shape, globes of suns. A famous example of a globular star cluster, but one not included in the Milky Way, is the great cluster in Hercules. This is barely visible to the naked eye, but a small telescope shows its character, and in a large one it represents a marvellous spectacle. Photographs of such clusters are perhaps less effective than those of star clouds, because the central condensation of stars in them is so great that their light becomes blended in an indistinguishable blur. The beautiful effect of the incessant play of infinite rays over an apparently compact surface of the cluster, as if it were a globe of the finest frosted silver shining in an electric beam, is also lost in a photograph. Still, even to the eye looking directly at the cluster through a powerful telescope, the central part of the wonderful congregation seems almost a solid mass in which the stars are packed like the ice crystals of a snowball. The same question rises to the lips of every observer. How can they possibly have been brought into such a situation? The marvel does not grow less when we know that, instead of being closely compacted, the stars of the cluster are probably separated by millions of miles. For we know that their distances apart are slight as compared with their remoteness from the Earth. Sir William Herschel estimated their number to be about 14,000, but in fact they are uncountable. If we could view them from a point just within the edge of the assemblage, they would offer the appearance of a hollow hemisphere emblazoned with stars of astonishing brilliancy. The nearby ones, unparalleled in splendour by any celestial object known to us, while the more distant ones would resemble ordinary stars. Photographs show even better than the best telescopic views that the great cluster is surrounded with a multitude of dispersed stars, suggestively arrayed in more or less curving lines, which radiate from the principal mass with which their connection is manifest. These stars, situated outside the central sphere, look somewhat like vagrant bees buzzing round a dense swarm where the queen bee is sitting. Yet while there is so much to suggest the operation of central forces, bringing and keeping the members of the cluster together, the attentive observer is also impressed with the idea that the whole wonderful phenomenon may be the result of explosion. As soon as this thought seizes the mind, confirmation of it seems to be found in the appearance of the outlying stars, 
which could be as readily explained by the supposition that they may have been blown apart as that they have flocked together towards the centre. The probable fact that the stars constituting the cluster are very much smaller than our sun might be regarded as favouring the hypothesis of an explosion. Of their real size we know nothing, but on the basis of an uncertain estimate of their parallax, it has been calculated that they may average 45,000 miles in diameter, something more than half the diameter of the planet Jupiter. Assuming the same mean density, 14,000 such stars might have been formed by the explosion of a body about twice the size of the Sun. This recalls the theory of Olbers, which has never been altogether abandoned or disproved, that the asteroids were formed by the explosion of a planet circulating between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. The asteroids, wherever their manner of origin, form a ring around the Sun. But, of course, the explosion of a great independent body, not originally revolving about a superior centre of gravitational force, would not result in the formation of a ring of small bodies, but rather of a dispersed mass of them. But back of any speculation of this kind lies the problem, at present insoluble. How could the explosion be produced? On the other hand, we have the observation of Herschel, since abundantly confirmed that space is unusually vacant in the immediate neighbourhood of condensed star clusters and nebulae, which, as far as it goes, might be taken as an indication that the assembled stars had been drawn together by their mutual attractions, and that the tendency to aggregation is still bringing new members towards the cluster. But in that case, there must have been an original condensation of stars at that point in space. This could probably have been produced by the coagulation of a great nebula into stellar nuclei, a process which seems now to take place in the Orion Nebula. Yet more remarkable star cluster exists in the southern hemisphere Omega Centauri. In this case, the central condensation of stars presents an almost uniform blaze of light. Like the Hercules cluster, that in Centaurus is surrounded with stars scattered over a broad field and showing an appearance of radial arrangement. In fact, except for its greater richness, Omega Centauri is an exact duplicate of its northern rival. Each appears to an imaginative spectator as a veritable city of suns. Mathematics shrinks from the task of disentangling the maze of motions in such an assemblage. It would seem that the chance of collisions is not to be neglected, and this idea finds a certain degree of confirmation in the appearance of temporary stars which have more than once blazed out in, or close by, globular star clusters. This leads up to the notable fact that such clusters are populous with variable stars. Omega Centauri and the Hercules cluster are especially remarkable in this respect. The variables found in them are all of 
short period and the changes of light show a noteworthy tendency to uniformity. The first thought is that these phenomena must be due to collisions among the crowded stars, but if so, the encounters cannot be between the stars themselves, but probably between stars and meteor swarms revolving around them. Such periodic collisions might go on for ages without the meteors being exhausted by incorporation with the stars. This explanation appears all the more probable because one would naturally expect that flocks of meteors would abound in a close aggregation of stars. In speaking of an extraordinary theory of the Milky Way, the fact was mentioned that Broadly speaking, the nebulae are less numerous in the galactic belt than in the comparatively open spaces on either side of it, but that they are nevertheless abundant in the broader half of the Milky Way, which is designated as the front of the gigantic plough, supposed to be forcing its way through the enveloping chaos. In and around the Sagittarius region, the intermingling of nebulae and galactic star clouds and clusters is particularly remarkable. That there is a casual connection no thoughtful person can doubt. We are unable to get away from the evidence that a nebula is like a seed ground from which stars spring forth. There is still a more extraordinary phenomenon of this kind, the Pleiades Nebulae. The group of the Pleiades, although lying outside the main course of the galaxy, is connected with it by a faint loop, and is the scene of the most remarkable association of stars and nebulous matter known in the visible universe. The naked eye is unaware of the existence of nebulae in the Pleiades, or at the best merely suspects that there is something of the kind there and even the most powerful telescopes are far from revealing the full wonder of the spectacle. But in photographs, which have been exposed for many hours consecutively, in order to accumulate the impression of the actinic rays, the revelation is stunning. The principal stars are seen surrounded by, and as it were, drowned in, dense nebulous clouds, of an unparalleled kind. They look like fleeces, or perhaps more like splashes and daubs of luminous paint dashed carelessly from a brush. But closer inspection shows that they are, to a large extent, woven out of innumerable threads of flimsy texture, and there are many indications of spiral tendencies. Each of the bright stars of the group is the focus of a dense fog, and these particular stars are veiled from sight behind the strange mists. Running in all directions across the relatively open spaces are nebulous wisps and streaks of the most curious forms. On some of the nebula lines, which are either straight throughout, or if they change direction, do so at an angle, Little stars are strung like beads. In one case, seven or eight stars are thus aligned, and, as if to emphasise their dependence upon the chain which connects them, 
When it makes a slight bend, the file of stars turns the same way. Many of the star rows in the group suggest by their arrangement that they, too, were once strung upon similar threads, which have now disappeared, leaving the stars spaced along their ancient tracks. We seem forced to the conclusion that there was a time when the Pleiades were embedded in a vast nebula resembling that of Orion, and that the cloud has now become so rare by gradual condensation into stars that the merest trace of it remains. And this would probably have escaped detection but for the remarkable actinic power of the radiant matter of which it consists. The richness of many of these faint nebulous masses in ultraviolet radiations, which are those that specifically affect the photographic plate, is the cause of the marvellous revelatory power of celestial photography. So the veritable unseen universe, as distinguished from the unseen universe of metaphysical speculation, is shown to us different kind of association between stars and nebulae is shown in some surprising photographic objects in the constellation Cygnus, where long wispy nebulae, billions of miles in length, some of them looking like tresses streaming in a breeze, lie amid fields of stars which seem related to them. But the relation is of a most singular kind, for notwithstanding the delicate structure of the long nebulae, they appear to act as barriers, causing the stars to heap themselves on one side. The stars are two, three or four times as numerous on one side of the nebulae as they are on the other. These nebulae, as far as appearance goes, might be likened to rail fences or thin hedges, against which the wind is driving drifts of powdery snow, which, while scattered plentifully all around, tends to bank itself on the leeward side of the obstruction. The imagination is at a loss to account for these extraordinary phenomena, yet there they are, faithfully giving us their images whenever the photographic plate is exposed to their radiations. Thus, the more we see of the universe with improved methods of observation, and the more we invent aids to human senses, each enabling us to penetrate a little deeper into the unseen, the greater becomes the mystery. The telescope carried us far, photography is carrying us still farther. But what as yet an imagined instrument will take us to the bottom, the top and the end? And then what hitherto untried power of thought will enable us to comprehend the meaning of it all?